From Welcome Villain Films, the studio that brought you the horror hit Malum, as well as Beaten to Death and Hunter Killer, comes their newest nightmare, Mind, Body, Spirit, now available on digital. Directed by Alex Haynes and Matthew Miranda, and produced by Dan Asma, Mind, Body, Spirit follows Anya, an aspiring yoga influencer, as she embarks on a ritual practice left behind by her estranged grandmother. What starts as a spiritual self-help guide quickly evolves into something much more sinister. As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now, Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour, which stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, Mind, Body, Spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called extremely frightening and upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple Plus. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's the show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com And welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. In each episode, our special guest brings with them a movie that traumatized them as a child. This week, our guest is Camille Griffin. She's a writer and a director whose feature debut, Silent Night, is currently streaming on VOD. Welcome to the show, Camille. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I just want to say, Scarred for Life is such a good title. Oh, thank you. It should thank be you. scarred in childhood for life. I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> yes, there I'm you joking. go. It's a good title. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Uh, so what we like to do in the in the beginning is sort of take us, our listeners, to the beginning. How did you get introduced to horror? Are we talking about cinematic horror or horror in general? However you interpret the question. I think I got interpreted uh, to the cinema or horror. Or, I mean, as a kid, I'm I'm much older than you both, but as a kid, there weren't... We didn't have VHS players. I think the first VHS player came. I went to that boring thing again. When I was a child, you know, <laughs> 50, 100 years ago, um, there wasn't the internet, but there wasn't the internet. Um, but there were, weren't VHS. We had three channels. I remember when they brought out Channel 4 in the UK, that was like, wow, one more channel. Amazing. But they did show films. And my dad um, 
was an animator. Oh. And yeah, he uh, he animated and he and he had a rather kind of um sick kind of uh obsession with war movies. Not sick, I shouldn't say sick. He loved so we watched a lot of good war movies. And what I haven't mentioned, actually, because actually the one film that really, really, really traumatized me, but I, I, I can't, I can only remember one scene, which is why we're not talking about it, was a film called The Passage with Malcolm McDowell. And he plays a Nazi and he cuts off a guy's fingers, I think. Um, anyway, that probably was my first, very uh, first introduction to her. And I was like, <laughs> um, but my parents were divorced and I didn't want to upset my dad. I was like, but that, that took a lot to recover from. But yeah, my introduction to horror really was, I suppose, wanting to lean into the kind of more kind of, uh, well, the darker side of the world. Because I knew instinctively as a kid that things weren't, you know, we, I, I didn't wear pink as a child and flowers in my hair. I probably wish I had done, but um, <laughs> I was a bit of a tomboy. And uh, so I had a relationship with the darker side of things, naturally. So uh, I can talk about my, I can carry on with the kind of films that that touch me. And, yeah, uh, please do. Well, I remember also meeting, watching The Omen for the oh. first time. And I was like, oh, that must be, uh, oh, that must be me. And I remember looking in my head for like, you know, for any, <laughs> any six. <laughs> the six, six, six behind your ear. Are you sure I'm not evil, mom? Anyway, I wasn't evil, but I remember thinking, why my parents love me very much? Maybe I'm Damien, you know. They just want to kill him, don't they, in the Omen? But I love the Omen movies. And uh, see, I told you, uh, Dark and Twisted, you know, traumatized from childhood. Love it. Um, Fucking love it. Uh, so <laughs> I love the Omen movies. And then I remember being in bed one morning as a kid and this this crow, this black crow knocking on my window. And I was like, wow, the devil's come to get me. <laughs> um, so I definitely, um, definitely... Uh, I didn't want to watch her. I just think it was kind of lingering in the background and then I'd sit down and, but really actually all I wanted to watch was Indiana Jones and the Razor of the Lost Ark as a kid, but. Uh, it's a great movie too. That was kind of scary, I suppose, you know. A lot of Nazis in my childhood. Yeah, I was going to say. I was going to say, there's a trend, a lot of <laughs> yes, Nazis. And actually, I went to boarding school very young, and in our boarding school, which I admire them for, but I think we were probably a bit too young, as they showed us a documentary on Belson when I was about eight or nine. So I think probably, if I'm really honest, that's probably where the horror started, was watching a, a documentary on a concentration camp. Oh, so, geez. Uh, yeah, which was really obviously an important part of our childhood. <laughs> And all the parents had to sign the document, but I think they didn't watch it first. Um, but yes, yeah, so that's probably where it started, was knowing that bad shit happens. Bad shit does yeah. happen. Not to put it all on the Germans. Obviously, we put it on the Russians in the movie, but not to put it all on the Germans. <laughs> <laughs> I read someone last night, why are you so mean about the Russians? He says, don't blame it all on the Russians, you know. Y yeah. Wait, someone really wrote, why are you so mean? <laughs> that was very anyway, that's yeah. the thing. So I'm curious then, what draws you to the genre as an adult? Well, I feel like a bit of a fake because I didn't know I was making a horror film. Oh, okay. I'm really actually kind of impressed that the horror community have welcomed our film. I knew that the third act was going to be horror. I knew we were going to go from Christmas mm -hmm. comedy to drama to horror. And, I, and, and, and as we were editing the film, I was saying to Matthew, well, I think we made a horror film. You know, I think this is a horror film. But I think what's made it so much of a horror film is obviously the landscape we're in today. Mm -hmm. So I can't really say, maybe I did. I mean, I went to see, um, I mean, I'm going around and around in circles, but basically in my journey of trying to make films, at one point I went to meet one of the, the funders in the UK 
one of the head of the kind of mini studios, and she said, uh, "You're funny. Write a comedy. Write write a horror. We need a hor- we need horrors." So maybe unconsciously I went away and thought, "I'm going to write a funny horror," but I didn't. I wasn't like, "Oh, I'm going to be part of the horror community." So I'm so feel very very uh, lucky to have been invited into this community, and I think it's kind of cool. So yes, I always wanted to make horror films ever since I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> But I've always been a bit screwed in the head, so I suppose that counts. You know, all horror movie makers screwed in the head, maybe. Yeah. Uh, I, I... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've even got the lighting. Um, yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. Does that answer that, that question? It sure know. does. It does. It, it sure does. Um, okay, so it doesn't sound like you were expecting to make a horror film, but do you like horror as an adult? Do you watch horror? I love horror okay. films, but I'm terrified. No, that's what I'm saying. Generally speaking, my... For me, I love cinema. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, you know, one of my favorite ever movies was Rosemary's Baby. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. obsessed with Polanski. Yeah. I, I named Roman after Polanski. I know that's very un-PC. But, you know, um, I, you know, he was one of the greatest filmmakers that really... And Hanukkah. I mean, I suppose you could say Hanukkah is a horror mm-hmm. film. Oh, yeah. So, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, really, if I'm honest, I don't know why. I just thought I was into French cinema. But actually, <laughs> really, I suppose if we, if we analyze it, I'm definitely into French horror cinema. Um, the kind of intellectual i'm not calling myself an intellectual but they're yeah very much hanukkah was probably my greatest uh, i can't maybe i can't really say influence because i wish i could say i was influenced i was influenced by him he was my greatest influence i admire him tremendously and polanski and i remember watching lucas Middleton's earlier films did you ever watch lilia forever no I, I don't think i have no i have not yeah that's like a social horror i suppose they're like social horror movies i suppose i love social horror movies yeah, that's her favorite yeah and then, but the idea, you know, I went to see, um, was it in the forest when they made no money? Both of them, uh, the witch, Blair Witch. Witch. You know, um, excellent. But that, what traumatized me the most was the the kid in the corner, you know, mm-hmm. not to like total spoiler. So that's where my, my horror mind goes to is the psychological horror. So, but the actual like jump scare, I mean, I have to forward wind all those. We watched uh, Squid Game, which I thought was incredible. And I was like, okay, pause, forward, during all the splatting <laughs> and the concrete. I mean, all the, you know, and when we watched it, I was like, I can time the jump scares. I'm like, you know, I'm like, and it's coming, it's coming, it's coming now. And duck, you know, so I'm not, <laughs> I'm not very good at, what did we try to see the other day? My husband told us to watch, um, Ben, are you there somewhere? No, he's run off because I was horrible earlier. Poor thing. <laughs> but, uh, he told us to watch, um, oh, it was one of the very, very early kind of, they're in a cabin and they get eaten by the woods. What was it called? Evil Dead. The Sam Raimi movie. Evil Dead. Oh yeah, yeah, Evil Dead. Evil yeah. Dead. We, we got twin twenty minutes in, and I was like, "Okay, we, I can't do this. We, we can't, I'm too scared." <laughs> I love that. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, Thank I'm not you. good with slasher horror. I suppose is that uh, slasher? Like, yeah. yeah, like gory. You don't like a lot of gore either. You're not a gory horror kind of person. I think when you live in the world, in my mind, when you live in this mind, which I think is probably quite healthy, but but also so much in, t- in touch with neurosis and, and you know and fear and paranoia and uh, it, it gets too much, you know, I, I take it, it's all, it's quite a lot for me. I can't just go, oh, that was fun, turn it off. So I yeah. think the slasher, they're coming to get you in your sleep, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's talk about Silent Night, yes. your movie. Um, so for our listeners who are unfamiliar, can you tell them a little bit about what the movie is about? Well, the movie um, is is intended to be for everyone who doesn't get it out there. Um, no, the movie is a, is a satire 
is a satire parody of the Christmas comedy, you know, the Christmas. We call it the working title film in the UK because working title is a studio that makes, you know, Emma and Love Actually mm. and For Weddings oh, and Funerals, okay. the Richard Curtis. So we call that genre like the working title genre in a sense. But, you know, the Christmas comedy is not Hallmark, but it's like everyone's happy and silly and daft and posh. And, um, so it, it's a parody of uh, the, the British privileged classes and how they have to face imminent death on Christmas, on Christmas Eve. Christmas Day. What I love about this film is the way that it starts out, like you said, is a, sort of a Christmas comedy, and it's it's one of those sort of like, like the Michael Bublé at the beginning. Yeah, you got Michael D- Bublé. <laughs> You have like everyone coming together for that awkward Christmas and it's like everyone's coming together for for inside this house and it's it's always going to be awkward. Christmas is always an awkward time whenever you get like an extended if you have a large family and extended family and, and everyone together. And so I love that that's there. And then that kind of kernel of humor continues through the entire movie in very subtle ways. But it, what really blew me away about about this movie is this mo- is this one moment and this is a slight spoiler but i'm gonna try to talk around it where matthew good at the very end is trying to run around to get a can of soda for his kids yes. and that is one of my favorite moments of this film because it, it balances sort of like that dark comedy and also the absolute abject horror of what's really going on in this in this situation and i was kind of curious how you walked that line well, I think for me that's um I mean everything's an exaggeration. I mean I think there's real truth in the film, but like I said as a kind of satire parody of the of this uh, of this group of people, um everything's obviously um an ex- exaggeration. So I think what's funny about the British culture is that terrible things are happening, but they <laughs> say don't worry darling, sit down and make you a cup of tea. So <laughs> it's very very British that everything has to be nice and tidy and perfect and and really lovely um but you know the shit's hitting the fan literally so i think um for me that was a perfect example of um trying to keep things together mm-hmm. when the most dreadful thing in the world is about to happen and if you focus on trying to keep the thing together um it's like when you see all these apocalyptic movies you know i love the kind of i think we read reference in the film the day after tomorrow or you know, um, the what's road. The when she talks yeah. about the road, I've seen the road. I can't survive the road. Yeah, I'm terrified of the road. I watch the road and I'm like, oh, I can't live like I genuinely, those are my lines. Like, I, I, I could never live in the road. It's I'm far literally too like, honestly, just end me. I'll just, it's, I can't do it. There's no surviving. I'll just be out. Like, it's cool. I don't need yeah. to, I don't need to find out what that life is like. Exactly. I don't need to. I definitely don't. All wrapped up in those lots of dirty jumpers and never washing and everything. <laughs> Literally the monochrome. It's like, oh, please, please. So I think it was, I think that's a good example of them trying to keep things together, really, you know. And and I think, sorry, what I was going to say is when you watch those big action movies, like what was the one with Aerosmith where um, oh, Bruce Willis and uh, uh, Armageddon? Um, Armageddon, you know, everyone's always trying to kind of like destroy the asteroid Mm -hmm. or get on planes or spaceships and go to Mars or the fact is that's their equivalent. They're just trying to get the drink right. You know, they can't stop the comet. They can't they can't blow up the the threat to humankind. They can only just make their kids give them something. they're, They're not the best parents in the world. They are trying with everything they have. I think there's something kind of extraordinary about the characters because they're Pretty dreadful on and one, but also very much capable of love and 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 they're doing their best. You know, I feel for them, but they were intended to be a, a bit of a parody of that class system. Yeah, I was gonna say those characters are both the worst, but also sympathetic at the same time. Like there are points where you're like, oh wow, I really do feel for you, especially um, 
Annabelle Wallace's character with her stepdaughter. Like, give me the hug. Give me a hug. And, like, I've had a stepmom that's like that. And it's like, you're like, please leave me the fuck alone. But at the same time, I don't know. Like, you did – it's – the cast is incredible, too. And, like, was I'm curious – this leads to my question, actually, of, like, what was it like working with this incredible ensemble cast? And that also includes your children. Yeah, I think the cast – I mean, I think I was incredibly lucky because – they are supposed to be kind of frightfully dreadful people. And I and this is the class system I grew up in. I'm not saying all my friends are like that by any <laughs> means, all my friends are family. But, you know, there's there's pieces of references throughout. But the the fact is, you know, it's revealed later in the story that, that Annabelle's character is the way she is because she had a trauma of her own in childhood. I think what I'm also trying to say is that when you send... The thing about the upper classes in the UK is that they send everyone to boarding school. They all get sent to Eton and then they end up running the country. And I'm like, how can a traumatized generation be capable capable of making decisions for the rest of the population? So I am trying to say there's a reason for this behavior that, 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 that she's traumatized. But Annabelle Wallace, okay, so Kira came on first and Kira, uh, you know, she changed my life. Well, Matthew Vaughan came on first and... And he was like, this feels like a bit like a working title movie. And I was like, I know, we should. Uh, he was like, who do you want for Nella? I was like, well, it's got to be Kira, right? I mean, she's perfect. She's like, she's portrayed as like Miss Miss Perfect in the UK. She's had to occupy that role for many, many years. And I think it's interesting then to, with that, you know, with an audience expectation of what you're going to see in a Kira Knightley movie. So it was a miracle that Kira said yes. And she's been interviewed and she said she was hormonal. So I, 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 the fact she was hormonal when she said yes, but she did still do the movie. So I think she wanted to do the movie. It wasn't just hormones. Um, <laughs> but Kira was amazing. And then a lot of people came on board because I think the actors were, some actors read it and went, oh, you've got to be kidding me. There's no way we're working on this. And in fact, Matthew Good was one of the characters, um, the actors who read it and went, I can't do this. This is insane. <laughs> and then he came back a few days and said, I, I actually, I can, I want to do this. You know, it's like our line producer read it and went, no way, this is offensive. And then two days later, it was like, I can't stop thinking about it. I've got to work on it. So I think um, a lot of the actors were really refre- excited. They found the dialogue, the characters refreshing. I think it gave them something to do. I think uh, I'm proud of the fact a lot of the actors have something to do um, on screen. And they also, they wanted to work with Kira. So I think it was a a mixture of, I probably wouldn't have had the amazing cast had we not had Kira on board, but I think they also loved the script. And on set, they were just uh, amazing. I mean, Annabelle just, she really went for it. She was brave. Kira was brave. Matthew was brave. Beautiful Chopé, Kirby, you know, amazing. We had Rufus. We had, I mean, just the Lily Rose. I yeah. mean, just this delightful, beautiful, like Matthew Vaughan calls her character a millennial. She's a fucking millennial. <laughs> She's got to die. Um, <laughs> but she, uh, she, she embodies the younger generation, that mid generation. So we've got the kids, we've got Lily Rose's generation, and then we've got the adults. So I think it's nice to see the three generations living together. Um, yeah. So I couldn't have been luckier with the cast. They were, they were exceptional. Yeah. And so, okay, I, I've read interviews with you about how this was not made, written during the pandemic, but it has unfortunately come out during a pandemic. And so, like, what has that experience been like for you to have written this, like, really dark movie about death and just the end of times? And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, Jesus God, there's a fucking pandemic on top of everything else. Like, what has that experience been like for you with this movie? Because it really adds a whole other layer of a lot to the film. I think it's a shame. I think there's two things. There's obviously those making it, 
during a pandemic. I mean, I definitely yeah. did not write it. I wrote it in 2019. Mm-hmm. I wrote it. We came off Jojo Rabbit, and I was on the set of Jojo Rabbit because I've, like I, I mentioned briefly earlier, I've been trying to make films for many, many years. And when I was on the set of Jojo, and I saw Taika working with comedy, I was like, I get it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try using comedy because I think when you're talking about horror, I think all my stories have been horror in a way. They might not have been kind of slasher mm-hmm. horrors, but they've all been kind of very dark, disturbing stories. And I thought, oh, maybe if I use comedy, that'll make it easier. But we started filming and then the pandemic started to slowly come into the UK. And then we ended up wrapping two days early because our government went into lockdown on the Monday and we wrapped on the Wednesday. Wow. So that, that was one thing was obviously as, as we were filming, like making sure that people like, was this a real threat? Was this actually going to come? Was it going to leave Wuhan and come into the rest of the world? So there was trying to juggle absolutely concentrating on the movie and then this this threat coming in and then making sure everyone was okay and then in post it was that very early stages of the pandemic where we didn't really know what the rules were it was just like stay at home all the billboards said stay at home don't leave your house stay at home isolate 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 so we didn't really have enough of the reference of how long we didn't know then obviously what we know now which was how long it was going right. to last how many people were going to die how the medical workers were going to have to carry the world so it was very very hard to take that knowledge that we have now and put it into the film but what i definitely did not anticipate was this whole um anti-vaccine conversation <laughs> and it's it for me it's very painful because firstly i i wrote a film that was supposed intended to be semi-traumatic but it wasn't supposed to traumatize an already traumatized world but obviously if you make a film everyone's invested a lot of time and money into that. They want it to be released. So I, I think it's a terribly, terribly sad um, thing that has come out now. I don't think it helps the film. I think it works against the film. So I think if you were to take it out of out of context and just just put it out there in a world that we were used to two years ago, um, everyone would be experiencing this in a very different way. But this kind of... Uh, I get very annoyed and uh, frustrated about the whole anti-vax reference because, of course, I haven't made an anti-vax film. I mean, it's ridiculous comparison. Is that what people are saying? Some people misinterpret. I mean, I shouldn't put those thoughts in your head, but some people misinterpret the whole question, the boys question your or trust in government. Mm. I mean, the film is supposed to be questioning trust in government, but people seem to have forgotten that we had, you know, you guys had Trump and, and we, we have a ludicrous conservative <laughs> government. Like, okay. we've really screwed up things. They've really, but now the vaccine's out. Everyone's like, oh, we've forgotten what idiots they were. And I'm totally pro vaccine. But there are some references of like, he's questioning all, all, oh. all, you know, authenticity in, in uh, science and la, 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 la. So some people misinterpret it. Not everyone, but a few people. But yeah. It does seem a little bit of a reach. Uh, in a roundabout way. I think it's a shame, obviously. It's very painful to think that some people, I think maybe for some people it's actually very healthy because they can talk about this. Uh, everyone's, everyone's bored of talking about the pandemic because everyone's still stuck and everyone's still, you know, some people are suffering more than others. But maybe it's a chance to actually talk about facing death. But I didn't want to already upset an already uh, upset world, if that makes no, any it sense. Does. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. But the uh, Buble thing, we can talk about that in a minute, if you like. Yeah. Let's... I would love. Oh, yeah. Tell me more about Michael Buble. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, when we made the, when I wrote the film, there was no Buble in the film. There was no, the, that's that, that opening scene when they're all coming to the house. That was, a sh- that, that's like we shot later um, in the, um, in the post. We came back and did that because we, we missed some scenes at the end because we had to lock down. Yeah. And, and Matthew was like, they need to, we need to see them arriving. And I was like, well, I didn't write that because you wanted me to write, keep the budget down. And I knew that was going to cost money. And he had written a Christmas song with um, Gary Barlow. Do you know who Gary Barlow is? 
He's an incredible songwriter. He used to be in a band called Take That. Oh, can you take that? I do one? know that. I do know that. Yeah. Yeah, Take That uh, was was my teen was my teen um, boy band. They were like one of the first major boy bands apart from the Beatles. You know, he's an amazing songwriter. So they'd written this song, and he said, "Oh, who do you want to sing this song? I think we should put it in the movie." And I was like, "I don't think anything of it." I was thinking, "I was like, I don't know, my, my, you know, Michael Bublé. He's Mister Christmas." <laughs> and then two months later, he's like, "Got it, got Michael Bublé." I was like, oh "My God, how did he wow. do that?" What the fuck? Um, That's so cool. <laughs> Yeah, and I was like, "That is amazing." I don't know how you know, Kira Knightley. Oh yeah, she she she's read it. She likes it. Bublé. Yeah, here's the song. So I was like, "Wow." So um, what I am grateful for is that he obviously wanted to put his uh, Christmas song in the movie, but he did let me bring it into the parody and to and to play with it as the song as the film continues. Um, but it wasn't. It didn't originate with the original film. If that makes sense. Well, I mean, like Michael, like you said, Michael Bublé is Mr. Christmas, and I feel like having that song really adds to like the comedy of Christmas being like this over the top, joyful. Like it just adds to it so much. I love it at the beginning because you're like it's so sweet, like sickly sweet in a way. Mm-hmm. Like that feels like a very Christmas movie, and like you know everything's gonna break bad very soon. And it's incredible. Yeah. Like that for kind of like that vibe is just incredible. Yeah. It's a really, it's a really, it is. It's a saccharine song, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Very, very catchy. <laughs> very catchy. But it is very catchy. Well, they're all dancing to it. I like very much me with Christmas songs. Like, I don't want to dance. And then you find yourself like tapping or like swaying a little bit to it. And you're like, God damn it. <laughs> yeah. Damn it. Yeah. I don't know if Michael Bublé knew what the movie was about though when he sang the song. <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> well, anyway. Thank you. Thank you, Michael Bublé. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Michael Yeah, Bublé. you did a beautiful job, right? That's amazing. Um, <laughs> okay, so we've talked about your career in Silent Night, but Camille, what movie did you bring with you today that scarred you for life? Well, it's interesting because as we were having this conversation, I was like, there's loads of them, isn't there? There's loads of that are scarring life. But I think one of the direct references, perhaps, for this film um, was Where the Wind Blows. And um, it wasn't directed by Raymond Briggs. I looked it up again the other day. It was actually directed by, we must give the credit because... Oh, Jimmy Murakami? Yeah. Uh, wait, so Where the Wind Blows, it's a cartoon. What do you call it? Do you call it a cartoon or do you call it... Yeah, so let me just, let me read a quick uh, synopsis of this super quick, just to catch everyone up for those who aren't familiar. But um, When the Wind Blows, is a, uh, it's an animated film from 1986 uh, where a, na- uh, a naive elderly British rural couple survived the initial onslaught of a nuclear war. Really uplifting shit. (laughs) Oh my god, is that the famous Murakami? Murakami. No. um, No. No, no, no. But he's done a bunch of other stuff. But yeah, this is not... um... So Raymond Briggs was a famous cartoonist. And he, um, when I was young, I don't know if he's still alive, actually. He he wrote um, these beautiful... um, cartoons called the snowman yep. yes and Bogeyman. And actually i'm glad you know what the snowman is but a lot of people actually i speak to in america haven't heard of it but it was a oh, beautiful I love cartoon snowman of a little boy um making a snowman and they go flying together on christmas eve or whatever i love that one yeah so when i watched uh which came first no i think actually when the wind blows came first or maybe the book came first. anyway when i watched when the wind blows i wasn't expecting what i saw and it's a very uh, powerful film I found about these, like you said, there's two elderly couple who were working class in the movie and, uh, and, 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 and they're living in a little um, cottage 
um, during uh, a nuclear devastation. No? Yeah. Like I said, I haven't seen it for many, many years. But I remember watching it and thinking, and that was the first time I understood what a nuclear war was or what a nuclear attack was. Oh. And that, I think, is why it traumatized me the most, because that was my introduction to to nuclear weapons. And I and I never recovered because I was like, because they, they don't make it in the movie, do they? They don't. No, no, it's a very brutal. It's very br- brutal. It's brutal. Uh, well, how old do you remember how old you were when you first saw this movie and like kind of like the situation surrounding why you watched this film? Well, it came out in 86 and I was born in 74. So it's, I must have been 12 then. Okay. I mean, yeah, I must have been 12. I thought I was younger. So that's interesting. Uh, must have been 12. But I remember that they were just trying to kind of make it. There, there was a real innocence to this elderly couple. They they had no um, manipulative uh, or unkind um, characteristics at all. They were just rather innocent. And I remember thinking how tragic that was, that they were just trying to survive this godforsaken um, horror they'd been given. So I, I think it was, yeah. Well, you've just watched it, you told me. So what did you think? Ooh, I, this... <laughs> Are you blowing? When the wind blows, she's going... When the wind- <laughs> Well, I I texted Terry and I was like, of course she picked this movie. Like, paired with Silent Night, I was like, of course she picked this film. It's it's inc- it's incredibly animated. It's, it's beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. It has the vibe of a kids movie at first. Yeah, that's deceptive about it, which is why I probably watched it. Yeah, it's very deceptive because it has like again like with the snowman and the bear. I didn't realize that he also did the bear like has that very kind of like childlike quality. It's rather simple. It's like, it's deceivingly simple animation. And these two, this couple, they're just two pretty like normal older people. And they're just going about their day doing, making tea, doing the washing, cooking dinner, reading the newspaper. And it just seems so normal. And then it's completely disrupted and in the most heartbreaking way because they want so badly to live in denial that nothing is happening. There you go. There you go. So I've completely stolen the story uh, unconsciously as a 12 year old. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But it really, really, I think it's powerful. I mean, you've obviously just um, described it perfectly, but it really, really shook me as a kid. Yeah, sorry, Terry, you go. What well, I was just going to ask, do you remember um, what – I'm, I'm curious what how you felt because the, the last half of it is is so different from what the setup is. I mean, yeah, you know, there's the, the threat of nuclear war and, and whatever. But then afterwards, you were slowly watching these two older people basically succumb to radiation poisoning and die. And so I'm curious if you have any, like, any thoughts about – what you might have felt when you were watching that movie or how that kind of affected you. I know I f- I know it affected me greatly because I remember it was well I mean I think I I must have watched it before I was 12 years old because I knew there were bad things in the world before then. But I remember I had that sense of doom thinking, well we're all fucked, mm-hmm. excuse my language. Like we're all we're fucked. Yes. Like we can grow up, we can pass our exams and, and learn how to play cricket and, you know, potentially become adults. But really, the world is 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 never going to be the same again. I remember for me, that was a fundamental turning point where I was like, we're, we're, we've had it, you know. And, 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 and I suppose there's a cruelty to the, when you describe it like that, there's a cruelty to the story, um, which I think, 
it says it was his best selling his best selling um, one of his best selling books. I was like, wow. He so he brought his he brought his cartoon out at the right time, uh, unlike Silent Night. <laughs> um, but I wanted to see what Raymond Briggs said about it. But I should have done my research before we spoke. I wonder what he said about his um his own his own book. But anyway, yeah, it it, did, it changed my my world. Well, you said that it came out at the right time, and this what what kind of surprised well, didn't surprise me, but what I started looking into because I was like, I remember I, I was born in eighty one, so I was I'm an eighties baby, but like I remember the sort of like threat of nuclear war at that time. I remember uh, us hiding under under desks for like earthquakes but like also also there was that sort of like what do you do if the bomb drops or that's that's something you know something like that were to happen and i also started thinking about how there was a lot of nuclear proliferation movies of the 80s and including like the china syndrome the silkwood testament threads war games the day after threads like all of these there's like a whole list of um, movies that i pulled from imdb that came out in between and around this animated movie. And I feel like it's, it's such a, a smart time to release it, but also kind of horrifying <laughs> that it's like almost like animated. And it feels like yeah. it should be for kids. Yes. I think that's what's, yeah, that's what's interesting is. So maybe in a way what he did is what I've done. Maybe, maybe I just have unconsciously I've copied him, but he, you, I thought I was watching a cartoon and people think they're watching a Christmas movie, but it says here, it says here, um, uh, blah, 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 blah. Living in rural Sussex, which is where I live, by the way, the characters mm. in the film, John Mills and Dame Peggy Ashcroft as Jim and Hilda Bloggs, an elderly married living couple in rural Sussex. Um, blah, blah. The Bring River, it says here, the film's release was timely, capturing something of the mood of the mm. decade. Just nine months before the film's release, the Chernobyl disaster shook oh, the world. Yeah. Oh, That's true, yeah. too, yeah. Okay. Well, actually, who did bring it out in a very, they did bring that film out in a very um, traumatic landscape. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and so also I wanted to bring up, so there's two other films that I thought about with this one, um, Barefoot Again and Grave of the Fireflies. They're both Japanese, they're they're anime movies, they're from Japan, and they're made more from the experience of the directors, of their families experiencing the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But this made me think of that with the anime, with the kind of use of animation in terms of taking an atrocity and interpreting it in a way that feels a little bit more distant, I guess, because, you know, animation is, you know, it's it's not real. It's not the real world. So there feels like there's a distance from it. But there's also this, like, because, you know, animation is usually associated with kids, there's, like, this really weird kind of, like, oh, it's not going to be as bad. And then and the animation's like, just kidding. It's going to be horrific. And we're going to like interpret the horrors of nuclear war on camera with like people's skin getting like sloughing off yeah. and the vomiting wow. and like bloody diarrhea. Like it's just fascinating to me. Well, again, it's like obviously the decade people thinking about that, but the way animation and Bear with the fireflies and barefoot again, were released in the eighties too. And like, that kind of use of animation in that time period to really convey a different reality, I think, of nuclear war, which I think is fascinating and horrifying at the same time. I think what they're what you're saying in a sense, well, what I'm taking is that is that they're very clever because they take a genre. So you take an animated film, the genre is animations made for children, right? Mm-hmm. And because it's less graphic, because it's a cartoon, they can exaggerate and turn up the volume on things. And I think that is really so very helpful and i think that is what we did with our film is you take the christmas comedy genre and you go 
okay, this is your expectation. Now, when someone has an expectation, I don't think it's good to manipulate. Uh, I don't think it's good to missell something, but I think it's useful to be able to take a, a genre and an expectation and kind of turn it on its head. Well, that's how I yeah. felt when I when I watched this because I watched this for the first time yesterday and. Oh wow! Okay, you signed up for sight. You didn't know what you were doing. <laughs> I, that's that's what. Do you mean silent night, or do you mean this? Oh, film? when the wind blows. When the wind blows. Oh, yeah, sorry, no. I think no, silent night. Well. No, I saw that back at, at the at fest at during festival run, and I mm. absolutely, I I absolutely loved it. But uh, no, so when the wind blows, first time I watched it yesterday, and I think I was being disarmed by the animation because I was like, oh, it's a very cute animated style, like like you both have it's mentioned. It's very cute. It's it's two old people that look like they could be my parents, and that was what like really yeah. affected me as an adult was watching this and thinking about these two elderly couple. Cause my parents would be around the same age as them sort of like, uh, you know, trying to go about their life and they don't necessarily know everything because I, what kind mm-hmm. of made me, it, it, it's played for kind of a little bit of a disarming laugh in the beginning where he's talking about the, he misconstrues the bomb going off with like the big bang theory. He's talking, he talks about the big bang theory as if like this bomb going off is that. And so there's that kind of misinterpretation of what is actually happening that comes with the, the naiveness of them. And that is how I, I see my parents. So like I was disarmed. I was like, Oh, this is really, I mean, it's kind of depressing in the beginning because it's like, they're talking about nuclear annihilation, but it's also my parents on screen. And then it starts to like slowly undo that expectation of what it means to be an animated movie. And by the end of it, they're like, there's radiation burns on their legs. They're getting gaunt. There's like dark circles. Her lips are blood red. And she's like, Oh, my gums are bleeding. Like the, the way that they're describing things is worse than any, anything that they could have shown. And it was like, it really kind of, kind of fucked me up yesterday. Well, just like her very plainly saying, I had the most terrible diarrhea this yeah. morning. I was like, why is that disturbing me? Like, it's not that, like, it's like diarrhea is not a disturbing thing, but in the context of this movie where she's just like, says this, and it's like, oh my God, it's over. It's just, it's, it's heartbreaking. That's how I felt. I remember feeling that as a kid. I remember feeling like, if they weren't safe, then who's safe? Because there's an innocence in them. I think what was brilliant is that there's an innocence, they don't have any ulterior motive. They're not guilty of, 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 you know, of social crimes. They're not guilty of any injustice. They're just victims of something horrific. And I think when you're talking about your parents, yeah. Oh, sorry. No, you continue. Sorry. No, 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 you go. I just think that's what's so clever about it was like, yeah, you see children, they're innocent. But when you, but what you get with these older people is you get them expressing the horror by going, you know, like you said, on my lips are bleeding. My, I've had terrible idea. I mean, it's heartbreaking. It, yeah. They're such regular people. Like, they don't, they're just like, oh, yeah, you're retired. Yeah. We just live in this little cottage in the middle of nowhere. And, like, you see a little bit of a flashback to their life that's very sweet and ordinary. Like, they got married and they just had kids and they just had, like, a sweet, normal life for them. But then they also, what other is also really fascinating is how they talk about how they survived World War II. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, we did, we survived the bombings during World War II. So like, mm-hmm. we can deal with anything. And like, you know, you get, it's like in their heads, they're like, oh, we've gone through much worse. Well, they and also, like, fuck. They look at yeah. the past with like rose colored glasses. Like they, there's, there's one point, I don't know if you remember this at all, uh, Camille, but there's one point where they're talking about how like, oh yeah, it was really nice at the war, meaning World War II. They're talking about the shelters, the blackouts, cups of tea, but they're talking about it as sort of like a nostalgic rose colored view of what the great war, you know, was. And so I, 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 
you that kind of hangs over this movie with a pall because they're even after the bomb is off, they're like, well, we survived. And it's like, yeah. that's that is not the same as the bombs that went off in World War Two for most places outside of Hiroshima. But there's there's that aspect of it. And then they're talking about, oh, I wonder if the rescues are going to invade us now. And I'm like, that's not what's going to happen after someone drops the nuclear bomb. No one's going to be riding up. But like he's having these fantasies of like when he was back in the day, back in, in World War Two of like, yeah, I'm going to fight them off if they come to the house. And I'm like, I don't think that's what's going to happen here. But it's that innocence. So you, so you would understand the film better than me now because I haven't seen it since I was, like I said, I was a kid. But would you say, because I'm trying to see quickly if there's a quote, what was he talking, what was he saying in the film? Obviously, other than the horror of nuclear war. But what was his, what do you think he was, what was his message? Um, think? I think it was sort of like uh, the way government and the powers, because one of the quotes that uh, the main male character, James or Jim goes around saying is the powers that be, he keeps talking about how the powers that be is going to save us. The powers that be is going to like come through here. They're right. going to come and, and save the day and ride in. We just need to hold out until the powers that be figure out what to do. And so there's that aspect of it that, goes through the whole thing because one of the one of the things is that they have is all these pamphlets and the pamphlets talk about you need to build a shelter by taking doors and putting them at a 60 degree angle and he you know it's like well i need to get a protractor so he goes through all of this aspect of of all of these things that are supposed to protect them that have ultimately either made things worse because they've taken all the doors off their off their house to like make this fort <laughs> Or it's like it's so it's anti-government. It's an anti-government. It's an anti-government film. film, and I also think it's like yeah, anti like just thinking that God's going to save you because by the end of it, they're literally they're at their wits' end and they're praying as they die. <laughs> yeah. But like the other thing too is that they have pamphlets from like the county government, and then there's the cat like the pamphlets from like the federal. I'm saying federal like it's in the like we're in the fucking United States, but from like the federal government and like everything's different and they're like what the fuck are we supposed to do like where what shelter are we supposed to be in like what is the right thing to do and they don't actually really know what the right thing yeah because the governmental pamphlets are telling them to to get rid of all the cloth on the windows whereas the the county pamphlets are telling them to put white strips on the wall on on the windows and so there's like that kind of like no one knows how to deal with this but we're just going along because this is what the government says is going to save us at the very end also, kind of funny, like Silent. I was going to say a little like Silent Night of like take the pill. Yeah, I sh I should have watched the film again when I was um, editing it. I should have watched it again. It's interesting because you only really think of these things when people ask you later. You know, when you're doing the press. But um, I don't even know if Raymond Briggs is still alive. I should I try should try and get him to watch our film and uh, say this is all your fault. No, I'm joking. <laughs> um, I'm joking. But he. Um, it's fascinating that that man, that man's mind could go from the snowman, which is total innocence, I know. to this brilliant, because um, I suppose that is a parody as well, isn't it, really? Well, and so I mm. will say, you talked about how, you know, his movie came out at the right time, and you, you're you saying that Silent Night's coming out know. at not the it right time. But I'm thinking, okay, I think that Silent Night coming out during this time is incredible and like i know that some people are it's like fuck people think it's fucked up but i think it's all it just adds a lot of really interesting context to what's going on but i feel like in a couple years people might be like it's the perfect pandemic movie so you never know like in a couple where we're a little bit more removed from the situation i feel like even more so i feel like people will look at silent night like when the wind blows and being like holy shit like these movies just capture like our capture moment. like our 
capture our cultural context, even if you didn't mean to necessarily capture the cultural context of the pandemic. I think it still captures the cultural context of everything going on in the world regardless. So I don't know. I just was thinking about those parallels while we've been talking about the movie. Well, funny enough, having just now looked it up, it did come out at the wrong time for him as well. But he obviously made the film before Chernobyl happened. I obviously wrote the film before the pandemic happened. But the fact is, both of us were going, well, there's a lot wrong. And I'm not the only one. There's a lot of people going that the world is in crisis. And the pandemic has come out of that crisis, right? And has exasperated the crisis we're living in. So I am, I'm, I'm able to talk about anything Anytime, anywhere. Like, I'm not afraid of talking about things. But I think, generally speaking, one of the reasons why I wrote this is because people don't want to have these conversations. So I was like, okay, stick it in a Christmas movie. Maybe they'll have the conversation Mm. afterwards. So I I, I hope so. I do think it's like, at what point do we go enough is enough? Like, we can't pretend that everyone in Afghanistan is okay. We can't pretend the refugees in in the Europe camps are okay. No, they're not okay. We're okay. We're, We're very lucky to have our lovely homes. But, you know, it's like, at what point do we go, okay, we can't all be activists and we can't all be charity workers, but what what can we do to have the conversation? So I think that is very important. And I'm grateful that you're saying this is actually a great time to release the, the film. But um, unfortunately, you know, you understood the film perfectly, but that I can't. you can't always explain it. Mm-hmm. So when the film's misinterpreted, I, I should stop caring that the film's misinterpreted by people. I should stop caring about that. I shouldn't care at all. But yeah, I, I agree. I, I don't think I can expect to make a film that's kind of so uh, controversial and then be offended when people are they're like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> hey, at least they're talking about it. I mean, I know it's like, I don't know. Mm. I, I I have not made a film and I obviously cannot speak from that, but it's like people are talking about it at least. <laughs> like yeah. you're reading all the reviews and that's an absolute nightmare and I'm sorry. <laughs> no, but I'm grateful that people are talking about it. I'm grateful for that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, well, yeah, what else did you want to ask me? Is there anything else you want to ask me? Uh, so I want to talk about some of the images in the, in this, in this movie that like have linger. I can't stop thinking about it. I guess it's only been a day, but I still can't stop thinking about it where, uh, in, in under, uh, when the wind blows. So there's, there's this moment where they're talking about, uh, they're talking about how uh, they have insurance. So like everything in the house is going to be paid for and how like, this is all going to blow over by Christmas. Mm. They're having all these conversations about how like, we just the post need, will still come tomorrow. The, Don't worry, Terry. Right. The post is going to still come. There's like, there's that kind of focus on these little minute things that, that are going to, everything's just going to be fine. The bomb's done. It's over. Everything is, is we can move on with our life now. And while this is happening, they do such a great job of showing the truth where the camera is now panning over destroyed buildings, destroyed towns, destroyed cities. And there's this one sequence where there is a bird that is dragging itself along the ground because it's unable to fly. And it's just like going around in circles, like trying to escape and it can't. And I was like, oh, my God, out of everything in this in this movie, that is the thing that like I can't stop thinking about this poor bird that is dying and is unable to fly and it's stuck on the ground. Yeah, that's so interesting. And it's also in the in the two characters, James and his and his wife, who he calls affectionately Duck. Uh, So they're having this conversation and he keeps saying how like. Only the fittest will survive the nuclear holocaust that just happened. But then they're also talking about how the insurance, you know, will cover everything. And he's like, well, you can't expect things to be normal after the bomb. And then they're also saying like, well, the post hasn't come yet. And there's one – another comment that that she uh, – his wife – 
duck talks about where she says that there's a terrible smell of burning. It's like roast meat. And his response is like, well, everyone must be having Sunday dinner early because of everything. <laughs> and it's, it's so darkly comedic, but also very upsetting because when you start to think about, no, they're actually smelling roast humans. Like people are burnt to a crisp yeah. and they're attributing it to yeah. Sunday dinner. Oh, it's bleak. It's really bleak. I'm it's sorry I made so- you watch it. <laughs> no, it's I, I told my fiance, like, oh, I have to watch this movie for the podcast recording. He's like, oh, what's it called? And he read the synopsis and he was like, oh boy, have fun. <laughs> I was like, thanks. <laughs> he didn't watch it with you. That's hilarious. No, he did not. He didn't. He opted not to watch this movie. He was like, I don't think I can do it. I'm like, that's fair. <laughs> I know. I'm actually, I'm actually going to watch it again. I don't think I'll make my kids watch it. I think I'll let them off. But I think I should watch it again. But did you see? Did you see the front page of the picture book? The original cartoon book has the two old people standing, and you've got the mushroom cloud and the yep. and the, and the cloud. I, I suppose I think it looks a little bit similar to um, uh, to our cloud. But I think um, we had our chicken, Belinda the chicken. <laughs> Belinda um, the chicken. Yeah, and uh, we had different endings where potentially Belinda could still be alive. I'm just trying to get the picture, the image up. <laughs> Uh, so there's obviously a lot of the film that stayed with me after all those years. Um, but it's, it, it, yeah, if you, if you, if you Google when the wind blows and the, and the, the cover comes up, you see this big cloud and then the, and the mist behind them and they've got a cup of tea. So it's, it's a very, it's a very good inspiration, I think. Yeah. I hope other people watch it. Yeah. Yeah. It's available. So it's, um, it's only an hour and 24 minutes and you really, yeah, it, it flies by, but also your heart breaks the whole time because it does a really mm. incredible job of depicting like the complete breakdown of these people's bodies without it being super graphic. Like it is not a graphic movie, which makes it even more upsetting, mm. I think. Cause it's just like you just like the animation just becomes like their faces become so, like they very they have like very plump looking faces, like very happy, yeah, plump older people who are just like Loving life and having a great time in the country, but their cheeks start like they, like these lines appear yeah, to show their get cheeks gone. getting sallow, and her lips turn like are red, and then their eye they have bags under their eyes, and like it's very very basic kind of things, but really make a huge difference in their transformations over such a short period of time, and it's just very harrowing. Where did you watch it? It's on. I watched it on Tubi for free online. I just found it online. It's streaming okay, a lot good. of. It's streaming in a lot of places. Um, so yeah, and yeah, um, there's a there's a local boutique uh, Blu-ray manufacturer here in the states called uh, Severin Films, and they did they released it as part of they they have like a kids line, and they released it as a kid, part of their kids line. Oh my god, that's the thing. It's not a. That's an incredible joke. I feel like that's an incredible joke. <laughs> It is an well, incredible joke, which is how I ended up watching it. That's extraordinary. Well, they also also released uh, the Severn films. They also released Threads, which um, I have not seen. I own, Oof. but have have you seen it, Camille? Have you ever seen Threads? No. It's um, it's kind of I Let would say similar, where it's um, it's a it takes place in Sheffield. Is that how you pronounce it? England. Yeah, and it is. it's about the effects of a nuclear holocaust on a working class city. And the eventual long-term effects of nuclear war and civilization. Oh, wow. And so it feels like the adult version. I haven't seen it because nuclear stuff freaks me the fuck out. Like, yeah. I know. like I saw. So I watched Chernobyl during the pandemic. Yeah, that was I'm incredible. Invested. And it's an incredible, but it's really hard. And I think I don't realize how much nuclear stuff scares the shit out of me, me until I watch things like this. And I'm like, I can't. Like, I would just. I, 
it's too it's too real and so i always like and war i'm similar with war movies i love horror movies i can watch the nastiest shit with a slasher but war movies just like push me over the edge like it's too real that happened it can actually happen and i think it just makes it upsets me so much more than any horror movie like i cannot watch any war movies and this like very much was like scarred for life as an i know that terry <laughs> sent me a text and he was like the podcast is over i'm officially I'm scarred, scarred for, for life. life from this movie <laughs> we're done you're very brave individuals because it's like every time you're, <laughs> you're inviting to be traumatized endlessly by your um your people who you invite on yeah and generally it's like it's movies that are like oh they're kind they were, i can see why they were scary when you're younger but now you know this one was very much like a Jesus Christ, I'm confronting my own mortality on a Saturday night. <laughs> yeah. When I was pregnant with the twins, I said to my husband, I didn't know I was pregnant with twins. I said, oh, God, I feel really, really ill. I think uh, I feel like Rosemary's baby. You know, I feel like, you know, so all these horror films always kind of like stay with you, don't they? That, I think if you're pregnant or you're having a baby, don't watch Rosemary's baby. It's kind of a <laughs> thing. Um, it's like what stays with you? What stays, uh, what horrors like linger in your mind, you know? basically part of the reason i think that this uh when the wind blows works so well is is the t- the cast because you have peggy ash ashcroft and you have john mills as the uh you know the two main characters and they very famous actors right yeah. and uh they just they commit so much and it it feels so natural but the banter between the two that like it it feels it like really a real does. couple just sort of going about their day you know and i imagine like how like my parents are where they're just going about their day and then around them is hell, you know, potentially breaking up with COVID. And so it kind of brought me back to that moment and hear about the way that misinformation and the way that everything, because here in the States in particular, we get conflicting information all the time because the government might be telling us to do one thing, but then we might be in a very red state that's telling us, you know, no vaccine mandates, none of this, none of that. And so there's, I, I just, I felt for these characters so much because I see that that information, misinformation that we see today was also an issue with with their lives back in when the threat of nuclear proliferation was at its peak, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think he's saying exactly what we're all saying, which is like, how do you trust the people in charge? You know, at the end of the day, I mean, at the end of the day, how can a government protect you for something absolutely awful like a, a nuclear war? You know, and uh, I mean, are they doing their best at protecting us from the pandemic? They are now, mm-hmm. but they were completely lost, weren't they, at the beginning of the pandemic? They didn't know what the hell to do. I mean, I watched uh, the other day, I watched, um, oh, I've forgotten what it's called again, Contagion again. And I was like, oh my mm. God, oh, government God. take all the instruction from Contagion, the social distancing, the testing. It's like... It's like they haven't got a clue. I'm sure they all sat down and said, we need to watch Contagion, so we need to make a plan. <laughs> it's fascinating how clever Contagion is when you realize, uh, when you watch it now in a pandemic, you go, wow, they, he really understood something um, that no one else understood. I mean, the research that must have gone into that film was so clever. It was so accurate. Have you yeah. watched it recently? I, I have I not. Refuse. <laughs> I refuse. You're brave for watching that because every I, a lot of people I knew were like, yeah, I rewatched Contagion. I'm like, I will not touch that right now. Yeah. <laughs> I can't yeah. do it. It's so accurate to what we've experienced. Yeah. And it's so, so – and, and, and literally, actually, I think someone said to me the other day that actually some of the UK government did sit down and take instruction from the film, but it feels like they had to take instruction from it, which is fascinating. Mm. 
really fascinating. So do we want to give um, When the Wind Blows our rating out of five? Yep, that sounds good to me. So Terry, how many of Duck's best cushions out of five do you give this? Her her precious cushions that she could not have get fingerprints all over and have them get ruined in the bomb. That was that was one of the other moments that like stuck out to me when I on this on this first watch of the film is they're so they're taking apart their house and they're building this very small, triangular shaped bunker i guess in their living room and it, the instructions say to take the cushions and so he wants to go take the cushions. she's like not my good cushions i don't want to get Aww. fingerprints on them and so there's that that kind of dichotomy of like no i don't think it's gonna matter where those cushions are at they're it's gonna not be good but i think that kind of explains what how powerful this movie actually is because it takes the innocence that of what these these two couples have but also if you're a kid watching this and if i was if i had watched this in the 80s i would have been just as innocent as as this this older couple so it kind of it ties into i think how kids view the world where everyone is telling them get under your desk it's going to be okay you know if the bombs go off just hide under your desk everything will be fine and that's basically how they're they're doing so there's a connection between how the schools and how the government would teach kids to prepare for Earthquakes, nuclear proliferation, whatever the case may be. And I think that that this, the way that this movie plays with expectations and disarms you by being a cartoon, but then going so far into just sadness of watching this old couple die is just really well done. So I'm going to give, I'm going to take four of Duck's best pillows and use it to make my own little fort and cry. <laughs> what about you, Mary? Amazing. So I'm going to have to take four of her cushions and then sadly cut one in half <laughs> and have half of the cushion. She's not going to like that. No, she's not. But that's okay because she sadly put herself in an, two paper bags and looked like a sack of potatoes. And it's so fucking sad. Like, I, I, I'm i a huge animation person. I love the for, I love the medium of animation and what it allows you to do. And this movie kind of really illustrates that about what you can do with animation and the stories you can tell and the ways you can weave imagery together to create these really fucking devastating movies that are about some of the hardest things in the world. And I think it's just a beautiful film. I never want to watch it again, um, but I'm really glad I did. It is just beautifully captures kind of like what it means to be a person, just a person experiencing this tragedy. It's not someone trying to save the world. It's not someone under extraordinary circumstances. It's just two people just living. And it's absolutely devastating. And it's beautifully done. So four and a half ducks, best cushions. Camille, I know you have not seen this in a long time. But what do you give when the wind blows? How many cushions of her cushions do you give this film? Well, for me, I suppose the question is like, how important is this film? And I feel like it's saying something really significantly important. And I can say that the effect it had on me and maybe it wasn't intended to have an effect on a child, but the effect it had on me was like everlasting and ever enduring. Um, so that deserves an awful, awful lot of applause. And I think um, I can't remember the details as you do, but I agree with you. I mean, I think, I think we have to literally put the, put it right at the top. No. So we're doing it out of five, are we? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm going to give it four and a half. I'm going to take away half for the trauma it inflicted on me. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> as I'm doing right now on other people. 
<laughs> well, thank you so much, Camille, for joining us to talk about uh, When the Wind Blows. Uh, do you have social media presence? Where can our listeners find you? And what do you have coming you'd like to, to share? I've just, I've literally just turned my Instagram into public, but I, I have a very boring Instagram account. And I've just joined Twitter. Yeah. So, oh, so um, what is, what's your, what's your handle? Oh, I think you know? it's uh, Bonton Griffin, I think. Let's have a look. Um, I think it is. I think it's I think it's just Camille Griffin, but there's lots of Camille Griffins at Bonton Griffin, all one word. Followed you. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for today. Yeah. Thank you. Um Yeah, and, and so the uh your movie is currently playing. Are you do you have any plans for any any follow-ups right now for your movie? Oh, or? Um, uh, well my plans for tonight is in 40 minutes I'm going to meet a friend who's gonna see the film in our, in our local cinema because there's a QA, so I'm doing that this evening. Oh nice. But in terms of films, yes, I'm hoping to make another film with Kira uh next year Ooh. with uh, Searchlight uh, and making that with, with us, Ooh. with me. Um and that's the kind of that's a sci-fi, uh, would you say a realism sci-fi or a, a lo-fi uh, oh. set in a, future, in a future state? And I, and I wrote the idea about um, 10 years ago, I wrote a treatment on and off, kept trying to juggle this treatment and getting the world rules right. And then after I finished um, Sunday Night, I sat down and wrote it and I'm really happy with it. But it's, um, it, it's set in a future where a generation of children lost their parents to illness, weirdly enough. And the government inflicts um, parenting laws, like a big brother state. And oh, the wow. main character oh. is, a, is a parental license officer. And it's about her relationship with, um, with a system that she believes in and, and when the system turns against her. Ooh. So that's, so that's oh. that. Light and cheery stuff. <laughs> really happy stuff. <laughs> yeah. Really happy stuff. Um, so that's hopefully awesome. that's next. Yeah. Sweet. Cool. So listeners, you've heard from us, but we want to hear from you. What was your experience with When the Wind Blows? Send us an email at scarredforlifepodcast at gmail.com, or you can reach out to us directly on Twitter. I'm at MB McAndrews. And I'm a Gaily Dreadful. And of course, don't forget to follow the podcast on Twitter at Scarred Podcast. And please don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe. Thank you to Eric Power for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our music. Thank you everyone for listening. Please stay safe out there, but most importantly, stay creepy. And until next time. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you small-town dicks, this is The Briefing Room. 
Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in the briefing room. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.